Amen, amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ, who love God and who love people. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. It is a joy to get to be with you this morning. And, and during the month of December, leading up to Christmas, we, we've kind of taken a pause from our, our normal rhythm of preaching through books of the Bible to do a series specifically on Advent, uh, which is uh, when the Christian church celebrates the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so our series is called A Thrill of Hope, A Weary World Rejoices. Uh, and, and more than just like a lyric to, to like my favorite Christmas song, which is Oh Holy Night, um, it's, it's, it's so relevant to, to where we've been, where we are, and where we need to go. Because when, when past pain and present realities lead us to places where we are weak and weary, we need to have a real and living hope that can help us endure uh, what is in the present and persevere to a better future with Christ. And so while there's joy and peace and, and love that we talk about in Advent, hope is so necessary for us to understand what Jesus has done what Jesus is doing, and what we hope Jesus will do in his return. And so I want us to begin, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, it'll be up on the screen as well. But um, as we turn there, I want us to ask ourselves, why do we need hope? And, and our first week we defined hope, last week we said hope for the weary, this week is hope for the world. Why do we need hope in the world? Well, we need hope in the world because of the brokenness of the world. Like, I mean, we, we kind of almost start every week, I feel like, like banging this drum, like, is anybody okay with how the world is? And, and we should all like kind of come in, no matter how we came in, whether you know Jesus or not, there's something in you that says, the world's not the way it should be. And so we need hope. And we have hope because God has promised us that in the tension we walk in and, and that we don't like the way the world should be is that it's also not the way the world is going to be. Hope is something that we have for a better future than our current present. And so when the world is not how it should be, it leads us to places of fear and weariness and concern. But when we have a vision of the way the world will be, we have hope and peace and endurance and assurance. See, the, the story of the Bible, is, if you don't know, begins with God creating everything and making it all good, making it all perfect. And yet right away, while well, 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 the story begins well, right away, sin enters the world and, and, and it does so through humanity's rejection, not just of God's law, but of God's presence, of God's provision. And with that, a conflict began where the world gets plunged into darkness and it happens in our individual souls. It happens in our relationship. It happens in our bodies as they begin to decay and we know that death is near. It happens uh, in creation. As, as the Bible says all creation groans because of sin. And so there's something in us that, that really desperately wants things to be better than they are. And so... What I think is amazing about the, the storyline of the Bible, that while God made everything good, sin enters so quickly into the picture, and if I were you and I was reading this book, I would be so disappointed, I would just set it down and say, enough, I don't want anything. Except as soon as sin enters the world, God brings hope. 
And so in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that there's going to be one born of woman who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to be a savior king of God's people. And so immediately, while darkness reigns, there's a promise that light is coming. And so for generations, people are like, is this it? Is this the guy? Is this the one? And so, and and if you read through the Bible, you're like, I don't know, it feels like it goes a long time of like kind of a Game of Thrones like nastiness and there's just nothing good going on. And so generations come, generations go, and God isn't silent, but as, as things begin to get darker and darker, God reiterates hope. He said there is hope for the world, and he does that specifically in Genesis um, chapter 12, verse um, 17 and 18 says this. This is God making a promise to a man named Abram. He says this, I will surely bless you. Okay, great. That's personal. Awesome. Abram's going to do great. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sands that is on the seashore. So now there's a guy uh, who God says, yeah, I'm going to bless you, and it's going to multiply so many people. Like, that's such great fruitfulness. Like, that's a legacy. Good for him. And your offspring, he says, shall possess the gate of his enemies, meaning like he's going to be victorious. He's going to overcome what is defeating us. And he says this in verse 18. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so while the promise goes through a family, through a people, and that's Abram, then then Isaac, then Jacob, right? Like through the nation of Israel, the promise isn't just for God's special select people alone, but it's a promise that goes out to all the nations, People that have rejected God, people that, that are of different ethnicities and different nationalities across the whole world. And he says, hey, the, the, the Savior King is coming. A universal call will go out to all nations, to the exclusive saving power of one true King. And that's where and how we can begin to have hope for the world that no matter how far away you find yourself from Jesus, that God has said all the nations of the world will be blessed by this coming king. And so this universal promise of an exclusive salvation uh, is something that should bring us hope. And yet, yet I think when we say, okay, good, there's, there's going to be a Savior coming, and, and that, that like, like reconciles the fact that like we have our own sin, we, ha- we need to be saved. But he also says it's not just a, 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 um, a, a soul spiritual Savior, he's also going to be a ruling king. So while all the other nations have their king, like at the end of the day, there's one king that we're all going to bow down to. And so we need both a savior and a king if we're going to have hope for a weary world. And yet, I think our challenge is we can say we want that king, but what's really true within us is that we really want our own kingdoms. Whether it's a kingdom of one, a kingdom of your family, a kingdom of your political party, a kingdom of your nation, uh, whatever that is, whatever we've tied our identity to more than the God who's made us. We say, no, I want that kingdom to come. I want that kingdom to flourish. And so when that kingdom gets threatened, like, I, I don't know. I don't really know that I want a, a savior king to come because I feel like I'm doing pretty well on, on my own. Like I'm, I'm ruling myself well. And so we're going to see how that plays out. Because generations of darkness continue. God's people go from being faithful to faithless, faithful to faithless, and yet through it all, God remains faithful. And we get to this place in Matthew chapter 2, where there's been great darkness in the world, 
We'll talk about the history in a moment. Light has, has been born. We'll talk about that more next week, Luke chapter 2, and, and, and on Christmas Eve, right? Jesus being born. And here we are about two years after Jesus has been born, Matthew chapter 2, where we're going to see what the world's hope is when it's in itself, starting in verses 1 through 8. I'll read and we'll talk about it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Hold on to that. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled or distressed, and all Jerusalem with him and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them, where's the Christ, the Savior King, to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring him to me, that I too may come and worship him. The sarcasm's not in the text, but it, it, you'll see why it's there in a minute. Okay. Let's talk about this. Number one, we're going to talk about hope for the world. Number one is this. Hope shows up in the face of real opposition. Number one, hope shows up in the face of real opposition. And so where does the world find hope? Well, the world finds hope in political power, right? In, in prosperity or in pleasure. Okay, those are those three kind of main ways that we go to find hope. And, and, and Herod really embodied all of these. So for a, a moment of history, uh, maybe if you don't have all of your kind of Roman history memorized, most of us don't even know U.S. history or even most of our family histories, right? Fifty years before this, a man named, named Caesar, right, Julius Caesar, took over the Roman Empire, and he switched them from being a Roman Republic of representative senators to like an emperor. I am Caesar. I am the emperor. And it went really, really well for him. If you know anything about Shakespeare, right, um, he doesn't make it very long, right? A bunch of his buddies get around. Uh, they all stab him. A two brute, right, stab me in the back. And, and so Caesar's gone. And his adopted uh, son, um, uh, Octavius, uh, becomes uh, uh, the emperor in his place, in his stead. And, and so Octavius then renames himself Caesar Augustus. And, and he becomes like the first real main emperor that goes for a long time in the Roman Empire. And he makes himself um, a, a king and an emperor. And what he does is he actually remakes Julius Caesar, uh, his image, his, his history, and he says, he wasn't just a man, he was a God. Well, what does that make you if you're the son? The son of God. So when we talk about Jesus in the context of son of God, like, like that's very much like an affront to the politics of the day. So he's saying, hey, I'm son of God. So super humble guy, uh, right? Uh, and, and he then takes over a whole bunch of territory. And this period that uh, uh, is really marked by a lot of war uh, and conquest and slavery gets called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. And because um, Augustus was the leader of the Roman Empire, already you guys are glazing over, we'll get there, okay. Um, because he was the leader, they called him the Prince of Peace. Any of this sound familiar? 
when we think about who Jesus is. Son of God, Prince of Peace. Well, no, there already is one. He's over in Rome. He's in the capital. Okay, so what does this have to do about Jesus and Herod? Well, at the time, Herod was a really wealthy guy, and Herod was half Jewish, half Edomite, so, so at that day, like, racial purity really, really mattered. We've moved on from race. It's something that we worry about now, right? No one? Okay. So, he he's, he's kind of has one foot in kind of these two worlds, and he's really wealthy, and so what he does is he bribes Caesar Augustus and says, hey, if I give you a bunch of money, will you name me king of the Jews? And he's like, yeah, sure, no, no problem. Here's the money. Now you're king of the Jews. Oh, hey, small problem. Um, Rome didn't rule over Judea or, or, or the, the, where the Israelites lived at that time, where the Jewish people lived. So he paid off Rome, and then Rome uses their army to come in and take over that territory to then hand it to Herod. And so the person who's now king of the Jews, the savior of, of God's people, is now leading as a puppet of Rome, and people are under Roman peace, but the reality is they're under slavery. They've been oppressed economically, politically, religiously. And so Herod, um, he didn't like the religious people because they didn't like him. They're like, oh, you're turning our nation impure. Like, you know, we, we need to, you know, uh, 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 you know, take you out and everything. So he's like, okay, never mind. Let me help you out. You know that temple that you've wanted rebuilt uh, for generations? I'll, I'll rebuild that temple if you religious people will prop me up. They said, cool, that's great. And, and, and part of it, he rebuilds the temple, and, and uh, rumor has it, a legend has it, is that he actually stamped his name on many of the stones that the temple was built on so that everybody would know whose temple it really was. And if there's any question, at the top of the temple was a Roman eagle letting you know who was in charge. And you're like, okay, so we got some kind of religious nationalism going on. Like, like what's, what's the, the big deal? Well, um, he also was just an incredibly vicious ruler. He would murder and exile his uh, rivals. He had family members killed. He had rabbis killed, um, all for political gain. He put his face and mark on all the money. He built all sorts of different things. And like, no matter how much infrastructure or buildings he built, like nobody liked him because he was ruling horribly. People were not experiencing peace. They were not experiencing hope. And so in the midst of this dark and hopeless time, God's people have an ungodly king who claims to serve this guy who's the son of God and the prince of peace. The religious people have sold out and they're like, hey, anything to prop up our little political power that we have. And so, um, all of this is going on. Uh, if you know Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus orders this census, and so you're in this period of, of massive migration, not unlike what we're going through right now, right? And the outworking of that was higher taxes, higher uh, economic oppression that the people were dealing with. And so in all this time, and there's really nothing that somebody could tangibly hold on to and say, this is such a hopeful time. This is what we all wanted. This is, this, is, this is paradise as it should be. This is such, such a, a great time. And so in the middle of all of that, a child is born who we know turns the world upside down. We'll talk about next week how like he's announced with angels in the field, the shining light, singing loudly, rejoicing in the darkness. And while that happened, right, in a little town of Bethlehem, it, 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 it wasn't even news. Like, it never even made it to Jerusalem. And if you're like, well, wow, I mean, 
Bethlehem some backwater. It's so far away. Eh, six miles. Six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I mean, that's like, what, here to Everett? And so um, it didn't even register as something that was a big deal for a couple years. And that leads us to where we are in Matthew 2. Because what has happened now is these, these magi, these, these, you know, the wise men, right? The, they're, they're really court astrologers from some eastern land. They've come with this massive procession into Jerusalem. They're incredibly wealthy. They're incredibly influential, okay? They are powerful. We're talking world leaders here. And, and these guys have said, hey, we've been looking at this star for a couple years. And, and, you know, back then astrology, right, that was seeing a star rise meant the rising of a new king or the rising of a new political force, and so they, they have taken that, they have used that, they have studied that, and it moved them to a place where they left their area of comfort to go on this long journey. And when we talk about hope for the world, God crossed religious lines, political lines, racial lines, socioeconomic lines, all to reach some people that were so far from God. I mean, we're, we're talking like legit pagans. Like, you know, hey, let's cut up an animal and scatter its bones around and see what it says, right? I mean, like, that's where these guys are at. And yet God, in the amazingness of his creation, leads them to a place of humility where they begin a journey where they say, what we're worshiping isn't working. Let's go ahead and get on the road and let's go to Jerusalem. And so he, they roll into Jerusalem and as they do, um, you know, they go on this journey. It might have even taken them a year or two to get there. They don't know what it's going to yield, but they trust that it's going to be worth it. And when they get there, they come to Herod first because Jerusalem's right. That's the, that's the capital. Like, I mean, clearly, if a king was born, he would be in Jerusalem, right? Maybe even Rome. And they walk in and they say, hey, Herod, um, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? And so like, you read that the first time, you're like, that, that doesn't seem controversial. Well, if you're Herod, you bought your kingship. Like, you know, we're talking 30 years later, he's, he's for decades ruled, but yet in the back of his mind, he knows he's not legitimate. In the back of our minds, we know we're not the greatest rulers of our own lives. Something in us says, mm, I wonder if I'm as legitimate as I think I am or as I try to portray I am to others. And so for Herod, his insecurities just grow and grow. And, and as, they, as they do, I mean, they, this is like a direct challenge to his legitimacy and to his legacy. So that leads us to number two. Hope shows up in the midst of chaos. Hope shows up in the midst of chaos. Verse three says, Herod and all of Jerusalem was troubled. And, and in the Greek, um, the word translates individually to terrified or disturbed. So, so for Herod, he's terrified, he's disturbed, he's not just like a little upset. But when you talk about it communally, when it says all Jerusalem with him, the word in the Greek translates to riot. So now you've got this procession that's come in from a foreign land. They're saying, hey, there's like a, a real king of the Jews. Who, who's that guy again? And all of a sudden, a riot breaks out. And so mentally, put yourself on January 6th in Washington, D.C. Or any Tuesday in Portland, right? Either one of those, right? That's what's going on. And, and so there's chaos in the streets. People are hopeless. There's, it, it, it's just a mess. And in the midst of this, there's still hope. Herod 
doesn't know his Bible, right? Ignorant of the Jewish scriptures. So he gets the religious leaders who he paid off, you know, a generation ago. He says, hey, I know you've got prophets that a couple hundred years ago said uh, the Savior's coming. Can, can, you, can you find out where so we can go send these guys to, to find them? And, and, and he kind of tries to keep it a bit quiet, right? And so the, the, uh, the Bible guys, they come back and they're like, well, hey, actually, we were reading in Micah chapter 2. And in Micah chapter, or chapter 5, rather, uh, you know, prophecy, you know, several hundred years ago. It says, you know, oh, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, like a ruler is going to come from you. So, so we think that the child, the king, the savior king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And furthermore, when you go on, right, even what they quote here, it says, he'll be a ruler who will shepherd my people. Well, you're already, if you're Herod, you're already shook up because the foreigners have come in and they're like, um, are you sure you're really the king? Like, you don't seem like you were born king. And now you're hearing that the king that's, that is uh, the one that is to come is a shepherd. I mean, that's imagery of care, of provision, of protection. And that's the exact opposite of how Herod has been ruling his people for generations. Fear, terror, taking their resources, leading selfishly. So his conviction grows, right? And so um, he has financial power, he's got political power, he's got military power. But the one thing he'll never have is the willing hearts of God's people. See, the shepherd will have that. The shepherd won't lead by fear. The shepherd will lead by love, by care, by mercy, by respect. And so he knows that his, his days are numbered, right? He's like, I, I'm feeling like this isn't going to go well for me if people get on board with this. And so he sends the wise men to investigate the claim under false pretenses, right? Hey, just go find that guy so that, so that I can worship him too. Well, I mean, again, if you know the history. Herod's killed every rival he's ever had. Nothing's going to stop him from taking out a two-year-old, and we'll see that in a minute, too. And so while we can kind of bemoan Herod, right? Any, anybody, like, want to vote Herod 2024? No? Okay. So we're like, ah, oh, we don't like Herod. What about the religious people? I mean, he's told them, hey, find out where the Savior King is going to be born. And these religious guys who, you know, went to seminary, who, they, 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 you know, they write big essays. They're probably on Twitter, right? You know, they're, they're, they're out there. They're thought leaders religiously. And they're told that the Savior King is going to be born in Bethlehem. And like, they ain't going four or five miles to maybe follow the wise men? Like supposedly they've been waiting their whole life for this Savior King? Well, maybe they've been really interested about knowing about God rather than actually communing with God. Maybe they like the way the system's set up. Maybe they like that they have influence and power and things are kind of comfortable for them if it means they get to keep their status. Because I'll tell you, if there's another king than Herod, if there's another savior than that, than that pharisaical system that they had, then things are going to get really messy. People might have relationships with the Lord that, that don't require uh, you know, some other person to mediate for them if that person's not Jesus. And so I, I'm just, I'm blown away that they have heard about the hope of God in Jesus, but they're unmoved by the hope of life with Jesus. And so it's not enough for us to just know about the hope of God. 
But you have to ask yourself, how do you respond to the hope of God in Jesus? Let's see how the, the Magi respond, the, the wise men in, in verses 9 through 12. This is their response. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure, and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this leads us to number three. Our journeys have hope when our journeys lead to Jesus. Our journeys have hope when they lead to Jesus. I mean, these guys, like I said, they've left everything, and all they want to do is be in the presence of Jesus. They're like, we just want to know that there's hope. We want to know that there's better than our Eastern religions and whatever's happening in our country. One of those better than what's happening in Rome. Tell me, God, that there is hope for a world that is better than this. And so they, they leave literally everything, take everything they can with them of, of worth and value, and they, they show up and they go on this journey. They follow God's sign. And after years and months of studying, of traveling, they finally get there. And just to mess up, I think even the nativity scene that's out in the foyer, um, they don't see Jesus in a barn. And they don't see Jesus as a baby. Jesus at this point is probably about two years old, okay? And, and Mary and, and Joseph have settled in to Bethlehem after the great migration uh, that was caused politically a couple years earlier. And so they come in, and, and you got to think, man, you, you've left everything, you've been traveling, and then you roll into Jerusalem, they're like, ah, he's not here, he's in this you know, Bethlehem backwater town. And so imagine you're some great delegation from the United Nations or something like that, right? And, and you roll into D.C., they send you to Seattle, and then Seattle's like, well, I don't know, have you tried granite? I mean, there's like three pharmacies, you know, and, and like, I don't know, is there anything else up there? A buzzing steakhouse, right? And that's it. And they roll in with their procession and, and all of that, and it just probably just filled the, filled the whole village, Right? And while that town should maybe have been excited themselves, it was they who had great joy because their journey had led them to Jesus. And it says that they brought gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. There's, you can study the significance of, you, uh, of that if you want, but in short order, it means that there was wealth. It means um, with frankincense um, that they were um, preparing him uh, to be holy, to be a priest, and with the myrrh to anoint him as a king. So here we are, Jesus' poor baby in Bethlehem. Now, wealth, king, savior of God's people. Imagine the encouragement and hope it would have given Mary and Joseph, who, yeah, they've been visited by angels a couple years earlier, right, individually, and then, you know, and then, and then, and then the, uh, what, the shepherds had come and told them all that they saw. But, you know, after two years of changing diapers, and living in a small town, at a certain point, aren't you kind of like, was this the plan, God? But they were faithful. And so then this procession comes in, and I have to imagine that it would have given Mary and Joseph great hope. And, and for these guys, um, whatever they had, the path that they had been on, 
It led them to Jesus. And that leads us to number four. Hope makes Jesus enough for joy. Hope makes Jesus enough for joy. And, and this is what I find so amazing about how these magi, these wise men, these, these um, you know, political leaders, how they respond to Jesus blows me away. Because like, I, I know my story, you know your story, I know some of your stories here in this room, and, and like, we, 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 people say, hey, why do you follow Jesus? We say, well, you know, hey, I was, I was acting a fool in college, and, and, and it, just, it was leading to a path of destruction, and I had a, a good friend who, who told me, hey, there's forgiveness for my sins, and there's, there's new life in following Jesus, and, and I got a vision for what it looked like to follow him, and my, now my life is different. Hey, okay, praise God. Okay, for the wise men, Jesus hadn't forgiven their sins. Jesus hadn't made them healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. In fact, right, quite the opposite. They're the ones that came with the wealth. He hadn't even like, you know, said, hey, I'm coming back and there's gonna be a new heavens and new earth. So, so what's the big deal? Why the great joy? Because they were with Jesus. Because Hope happens when our journeys lead us to Jesus. Not just about what Jesus will do for us or where we hope Jesus will take us or how Jesus will fix us. Those are, those are all good things. Like, hold on to that, man. Jesus has broken you from addiction, praise God. Jesus has changed your life, praise God. But the outcome of that isn't just a new life that you have away from Jesus. The, the whole goal of that, the whole work that God was doing was to bring you back into communion with God. To actually have life with Jesus. So for the Magi, Jesus was enough. Just getting to be with Jesus led them to joy, to worship, and to sacrifice. That blows me away because that is just, that is not how I operate. They were so joyful and they worshiped him, not because of what he's done, but because of who he is. Because he is the king. Because he is God. Simply put, Jesus is enough. Enough for them to give generously. Enough for them to, to journey faithfully. And it leads them to a place of humility, to worship, and that humility leads to greater hope. And so the application for us today is I hope that that no matter how far away you feel like you are from God, how foreign Jesus seems to you, how small or inconsequential he seems in your life, that your journey has hope if it leads to Jesus. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your political party is. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Jesus, God draws the world to himself in Jesus. And so while, I mean, this is right away, I mean, Jesus hasn't even preached a sermon. Jesus hasn't even given the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. The hope of the world is that Jesus showed up. That God said, hey, I'm gonna send a savior king. And yes, he'll come from God's people, but he'll be for all people that wanna follow and worship Jesus. Again, universal call the exclusive salvation of Jesus. No journey is too difficult, no distance is too great to keep us from being with Jesus. And so I want you to ask yourself, is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough? Because there's different ways to respond when you find out there's another God and another king other than the one you see in the mirror every day. 
We'll see a couple responses here in these next verses as we keep going. Verses 13 through 18. Here's some responses. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled by what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There are ways to respond to the hope of God that lead us to humility in life, and there are ways to respond to the hope of God in Jesus Christ that leads to greater resistance and ultimately violence. And that leads us to number five. Hope endures when it relies on God's provision. Hope endures when it relies on God's provision. I mean, here now we're, we've switched from the Magi to Joseph. And Joseph, who's been given a fresh kind of dose of hope, like, oh, I remember what their mission was for. Yes, I'm the adopted father of the Savior. Yeah, okay, what's going on? Oh, there's a political threat? Shoot, what am I supposed to do? Like, like Joseph's led by God. It says, an angel came to him in a dream. And what's amazing is, is that he's perfectly provided for. He is equipped for the journey at the time of need. Like the moment that Joseph is told to, to pack up your family tonight, to go tonight, to flee to Egypt tonight, is the exact evening that they've received the most portable wealth they've ever had. Right? If you're, if you're like a subsistence carpenter in Bethlehem, like you've got just enough for each day. Right? You're working hard, you got projects you're doing, trying to build shelves for the community or whatever, right? Like that's, that's your life. If somebody tells you, you got to flee right now, things are about to get bad. I mean, most of us don't have savings that we can just go up and take our whole family and, and go to another nation. God had just provided, his timing was perfect. Oh, I've got some gold, I've got some frankincense, I've got some myrrh, we can load up, let's go. And he's faithful the hope endures because he's relying on God's provision. And what's amazing, getting back to that theme of hope of the world, is where does he tell him to go? He doesn't say, hey, go to Jerusalem. Hey, go fight Herod. Go, go try to gain some political power so that you have influence again. No, he says, get the heck out. It's time to go to Egypt. If you know your Bibles, Egypt is not a place that God's people have really flourished, is it? Right? No, it's, it's a place that when there's famine they've ran to, but it's mostly been characterized as a place of slavery, a, a place of oppression. And yet God's story of God's people, like there'd been a great di diaspora generations earlier. There was, there was actually like a Jewish community in Egypt. But as God brings hope to the world, he uses the whole world to preserve the life of the Savior King. I, I mean... Egypt? Pagan Egypt? Right? With like the frogs and the Nile River and the blood and, and all that stuff. Like that's where we're going to go? 
And God says, well, I'm bringing hope to the world. Might as well go to that nation. And, 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 and so the, the family, the, like the royal family, they were exile immigrants fleeing political oppression. And they go to Egypt. And, and I'll just tell you, it couldn't have been easy. I mean, Joseph had to have had plans for his life. We have plans for our life. And then stuff happens. And we're like, uh-oh, it's time for a detour. Well, we might think it's a detour, but the detour might be how God is preserving us so we can have hope for a better future. Don't get so settled on your path that you're not open to how God could be using another path to actually bring you hope, to actually preserve you, to actually give you and lead you to a better future. Number six, hope for the world means recognizing and responding to a real and present evil. I mean, gosh, Jesus has shown up on the scene. Like, things should be getting better. I mean, the king's already been told he's not the real king. Like, surely he's just going to step down and, like, give the throne to Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've studied a lot of world history, but governments don't give up power very easily. People don't get off the throne easily. And so in this case, Herod's response to the hope of God in Jesus is not humble submission but it's vicious violence. And so he strikes out. He doesn't surrender. He savagely defends his kingdom. He sends out an order to, to, to violently um, kill all these, these young boys um, uh, under two years old. There might have been 20 or 30 in Bethlehem, they, they estimate at that point. And, and this is all to protect his own kingdom. When his authority is challenged, his position is disrespected, he becomes irrational and hostile and violent. And, and again, this is, this is on brand for Herod. I mean, Herod was so vicious to his own family that, 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 what, that what was known about him was they, they would say, better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be his son. Because you were never safe under Herod. And yet because murder and death was such a big part of how power was used in this culture, as terrible as this scene is, and it is terrible, it probably wouldn't have even made what we'd call the news in Jerusalem. Oh, Herod killed some kids? Makes sense. Pretty standard. Because people were hopeless. And what's amazing about this section of Scripture is that, that as you see Herod actively bringing violence you see, God's path of hope is vulnerability. I mean, if there was a time to have the angel army show up, wouldn't it have been when Herod's sending his troops to Bethlehem? And instead, it, it's not Jesus on a white horse coming to fight. I mean, that, that day is coming. But it's Jesus and the family fleeing to a place that is incredibly inconvenient, that doesn't feel like home, that, that is... It's temporary and transient. And so I want us to understand that if you're going to experience the hope of God that comes in Jesus Christ, it's not going to come from, from you being violent. It's going to come from you showing vulnerability, humility. I mean, this is, this is a scary path. And it doesn't mean that we don't mourn evil. Evil's real. It robs us of hope. And that doesn't have to be accepted. Like, we don't have to say, well, anyway, let's throw our hands up. That's the world. It's evil. But recognize this, as hope gets brighter, evil wants to strike more. 
because it is defeated. And so we, we don't have to accept it. We can mourn it. It's a tragedy worth mourning. And then we turn to God who turns mourning into joy. There's this great quote by Corrie Ten Boom, right, who was, um, uh, you know, during World War II in Germany, right, she's hiding um, uh, Jewish people from the Nazis, and she says this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still. You trust the engineer. See, Joseph and Mary and the royal family, they, they could go on that journey because, because they knew who the engineer was. They'd heard the announcement from the engineer through the angel, like, hey, you're going to go here. It's going to be okay. I'm sure it's still scary. Like, I mean, a lot of our lives with hope are, they're still scary, but this leads us to number seven. Hope can endure when we remember who's on the throne. Hope can endure when we remember who the engineer is, who is in charge, right? I mean, all of us have a little bit of Herod in us that wants to be in charge. And so we set up these kingdoms of fear. And we put ourselves into a false season of Advent where we're just kind of, all right, I'm preparing for like the next turn around the bend. That's what's going to lead to things being well. The, the next promotion, the next little bit of my kingdom growing is, is going to lead well, and, and then things will be okay. And we keep seeking our own kingdom, even though our kingdoms don't bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men. No, our, our path of hope is a place of surrender, where we don't have to worry about our legitimacy or our legacy, because in Christ we have all of the legitimacy and legacy we could ever need. Because God has said, I love you. I know you. You're my child. I will protect you. I, I will make you safe. I will lead you home. You want a lasting legacy? Like, you're, you're, you're one of my sons or daughters. You have, it says, the Bible says, an imperishable inheritance. You have a secure legacy. And that leads us to number eight. For hope to endure and lead us, we need to remember the good news of Jesus in our place. See, we love the gospel if you're a Christian of like, yeah, Jesus died for my sins so I could have new life. That is yes and amen. But we need more than just Jesus dying for our sins. We need Jesus' perfect life of obedience in our place because none of us have perfectly followed God. See, if all we needed was Jesus to die for our sins, then Mary and Joseph could have just stayed in Bethlehem. Here's Jesus. Sacrifice. But his time wasn't yet. See, we need Jesus' life of obedience in our place. And so, I mean, Jesus' life was threatened many times throughout his ministry. But for him to be the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world, it's got to be on God's terms, not ours. So Jesus' time hasn't come yet. Jesus is the hope of the world. He's the perfect sacrifice for sin. But he's also our perfect example. He's also a perfect teacher. He's also lived a life of obedience so that we can give Jesus all of our disobedience, all of our sin, all of our brokenness. We can give it to him. And the Bible says that he gives us his righteousness. But that's how God sees us. So that we can walk a new life with a path of hope. And that leads us to our last verses as we close. It says this. 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, 
For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, uh uh-oh, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, poor, impoverished. And when he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called, excuse me, a Nazarene. Number eight. In Christ, the world has a hope that outlasts evil. In Christ, we have a hope that outlasts evil. See, like, if you're still kind of reeling from those verses about Herod, you know, killing the kids in Bethlehem, you're like, I want justice for Herod. I want Herod to be taken out. What happens to Herod? Right away, we're shown justice. It says, after a couple years, Herod is dead. History says he died a horrible, nasty death from chronic kidney disease, guy liked to party, and gangrene infection just a few short years after Jesus' birth. So Herod's worried about his legacy, his throne, his kingship, and God's like, you're done. That's it. Anybody woke up today afraid of Herod? No, Herod's gone. Justice has prevailed. Herod's king, Caesar Augustus, was dead before Jesus was even 20 years old. So that son of God, prince of peace, ruling, gone before Jesus was 20. Herod's temple, the one that was built as this like kind of weird compromise with the Roman government and the religious elites, Rome came in and just destroyed it 50 years later. That's gone. So any, any sort of religious legacy is done. Jesus called it. He said this temple is going to be destroyed. And all this happens because Rome says, we don't even need the Herodians anymore. They're not important. What about Rome? None of us are Roman. Rome's not the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Their time has come and gone. Other empires rose, other empires fell. Our empires rose, another will rise. But see, In Christ, the world has a hope that will outlast all evil. And that's because the most evil thing that could have happened was that Savior King being proclaimed to his people and the religious and the political getting together and saying, no, uh, we're going to stay king. You're going to get put up on that cross. We're going to show the whole world who's in charge. That's not hopeful. But instead, as evil as the cross was, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. So three days later, right, Jesus rises. That's hope that outlasts evil. Jesus ascends and it says he's ruling and reigning right now. Yeah, is evil still active? Mm -hmm. Is it still striking? Is it still like, (sighs) when's it gonna get better? Jesus has promised his return. So no matter how dark things get or how much we think evil might be advancing our promise our hope the hope for the world is that jesus comes back and there's a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more sin no more suffering and no more tears that leads us to number nine we have hope when hope leads us down god's path and not our own i don't have time to break it all down but man Look on your own. Look, at, look through verses 16 through the end and just see how many times Joseph is led by the Lord. 
That's the only way you can keep having hope. You want, you want real and lasting hope for the world? Yep, Jesus is coming back. You want hope for today? Let Jesus lead you today. Let Jesus be not just the Savior for your sins, but let him be king of your life. Live a life of, of, of not resistance, but of repentance. Not a life of, of sedition, but a life of sacrifice. Not a life of, of pride and trying to grow your kingdom, but, but a, a life of humility. It says, not my will, but your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kings of the world resist Christ the king, yet the nations are drawn to him by hope. I mean, just look at this story, and God uses a nation from the east to call out corruption in God's people and, and the political powers of the day. He uses an evil nation in Egypt to preserve God's family. He brings them great wealth. Some of the wealthiest people in the world were the Magi, right? Given wealth, and then, and then at the end of the day, the family ends up in Galilee. Nobody wants to go to Galilee. Even right now when you're doing that like thing with your house where you zillow it to see how much you'd have so you could go move to another state, nobody's like, is Galilee an option? No, none of you want to go to Galilee. Because it was terrible. But what it shows us is there's hope for the religious. There's hope for the pagans. There's hope for God's good people. There's hope for, for all the nations. There's hope for the rich. And there's hope for the poor. That's Jesus identifying with his people. So that no matter how far away you are from God, there's hope for you when your journey leads to Jesus. Yes, there's going to be difficulties. Yes, there's going to be times that are even disturbing, right? Like with Herod's actions. But the destination God is leading us is one where we have hope with great joy. We simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.